We want to know how can spirituality transform our social movements and how can activism connect us to a life that embodies radical compassion? We'll ask these questions and more on The Rising, Spirituality for Revolution. Hello, and welcome to The Rising. I'm Chelsea McMillan. And I'm Rebecca Burnt. We're spiritual directors exploring the intersection of spirituality and social change. So, Rebecca, something that has been really heavy on my heart and mind lately is the whole uh, Me Too movement. And I don't know if, you know, a hashtag is <laughs> is really a movement. I don't know if that's the right word for it, but yeah, I don't know. Is there a better word, do you think, for Me Too? Maybe moment. <laughs> it feels like yeah. it's a huge moment like, yeah. for all of us. Um, but I do think it's sort of indicative of something that's been happening, a movement of something, an energy mm-hmm. that is yeah, really shifting. shifting. Yeah. And I think something that you and I have talked about is um, just in our other conversations is like women and and genders that are not male, you know, non-men have been dealing with um, destructive and um, and really harmful, oppressive behavior for a really long time. And, and, and women have spoken out or have tried to, I think in the past few decades, um, we've seen some, some really big scandals come to light. And, and those women tend to be vilified and, uh, and totally condemned and nothing happens to the man who's perpetrating these behaviors. And, um, but that's what's moving. That's the movement that's happening. That something's changing. People are listening. I think even the fact that many of my uh, male friends have been posting online saying "I have" or you know other such hashtags where they're like admitting to to some of these things, which is big. Totally. And I think you know it's funny. Even before the Me Too hashtag took off. Um, just in response to everything, all the stories that were coming out about Harvey Weinstein, I, I posted something, just one of my stories of being sexually harassed and assaulted and, and not even nearly the worst one. Um, Cause I didn't feel like at that point, like I wanted to lay out everything online, but I, you know, I just told the story about how when I was young and I had one of my first jobs and I was like 18 or 19 and, and this uh, serve fellow server that I worked with would always uh, come and like he would like with his pelvis like push me up against the ice machine and he would like sing sort of like a sexually suggestive lyrics and stuff and mm. and I was so terrified I was mm-hmm. so terrified and I I would get sick every time I was going to work like I would have all like nausea and I would think like oh god I hope he's not working tonight I hope he's not working oh, wow. tonight and um I was like, you know, this, it used to like bring up those feelings and emotions in a really intense way for me to, to think about that memory. And I feel like something's changing. And, you know, part of it is that it was so long ago for me, but even just the other, you know, cause even like I have, I have stories of rape and sexual assault as well. And, um, something that was so hopeful for me and seeing all these women come out and tell their stories and seeing this powerful man go down, Hmm. It was just like, it was healing. It was healing. And 
I remember thinking, like, I don't have the same visceral reaction mm-hmm. to telling some of these stories that that I used to, and and I that was making me so hopeful. Mm-hmm. Um, and it does. It feels like there's been a huge shift in energy, and and I know we we've talked. You and I have talked a little bit about, and you think you've written about like um, sort of. Trump is like the reflection of America's shadow. And it seems like right now, I think we're really in a moment in history where as a whole, as a collective, we are confronting our collective shadow. Yes, And um, and this is just an example of of these things coming to light. And Mm -hmm. and we're finally at the place where we can confront it and Mm -hmm. and deal with it. And it doesn't mean that like this is going to fix everything, but it's a huge, it's a huge shift. It's kind of a game changer. I mean, I feel hope. You yeah. know, and and that's that's a really big shift because I think that this is something that is so part of of our lived daily experience. I was having a conversation with um, with a guy friend of mine, and I was just like, "You have no idea!" <laughs> like, and 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 I get surprised sometimes when my guy friends are surprised when I'm like, "I don't want to walk in the park alone after dark, or even with just you." Like, mm-hmm. there's something so ingrained about. Um, you know, there's some, there's fear that's like so ingrained and, you know, just constant daily harassment, not to mention, um, my own stories of like, like being molested and, and, um, and pressured into things and, um, you know, that there's like a certain understanding that they sometimes don't get, (laughs) like, you don't know that this is like part of our lived experience. And so for, for us to be able to, um, finally have it be heard and, um, have men listen to it and sort of be like, wow, you know, like I'm just seeing that reaction and that's changing, you know, that there's sort of like an awakening happening. And, and I want to say too, that I have a lot of amazing conscious men in my life who, you know, my lived experience is generally like, you know, I, I just, I know a lot of men who are very in touch with their femininity and a lot of women who are in touch with their, their masculinity. And, you know, and I'm kind of sticking with like the binaries, obviously, obviously masculinity and, and femininity are, are just energies that people of all genders um, hold, you know, and, um, and we've labeled them masculine and feminine. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, exactly. Um, you know, it's interesting because I was having a conversation with, um, my housemate, uh, Colin Bevan, um, who's a writer and an activist and, um, and sort of well-known he's a, an environmental activist and he wrote an article on the Me Too movement in Yes magazine and he was really sort of reacting against the the male and female sort of thing that like and calling it masculine and feminine that really it's like receptive and assertive mm-hmm. and and I know that but I think it's also been ascribed to people yeah we've been socialized as uh, you know, whatever our gender is to act in these ways. And right. so you can't really separate those energies right now. I agree. I agree. I mean, it's kind of like, it's kind of like when white people say, I, I don't see race. Right. You know, and it's like, well, you might not see it, but it's in you because that's yeah. the culture, that's the world that's been created and you're a product of it. And that's what needs healing. Yeah. It's like, yeah, we all know that underneath, like race doesn't actually exist, you know, gender does not, gender and race are like social constructs, but 
Well, and like just hearkening back to our last episode with uh, Amanda Garcia, she's like the what is imaginary is real. Everything that's right. real starts in the imagination. So right. just because it's a social construct doesn't mean it's not real. It doesn't right. mean that we haven't embodied it. And it needs healing yeah. to to get to that point that we, you know, sort of that um, ideal situation that we'd like to see. And so one thing I wanted to bring up was, um, and I actually posted about this like on my own uh, Facebook page, and I have a, a blog <laughs> called On a Question, um, where about a year ago, or even more than a year ago, um, I got a, a message from someone who I had had a one night stand with, you know, it was someone that I didn't know very well, we were sort of like in the same friend group in at this uh, retreat center that we were both working at. Um, and, you know, we kind of like flirted and bantered a little bit. And, and then all of a sudden, like one night ended up in bed together. And, mm-hmm. and it was like, super awkward. It was like, not a fun <laughs> night, really. Um, and it, but, and it was not like traumatic, you know what I mean? I'm not saying this is not at all like a, a rape story or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It was really an example of sort of those like, sex is confusing. We're both young adults. Like we have no idea what we're doing, you know, Mm -hmm. like that kind of thing. But I received a note from this guy, um, apologizing for that evening. And first of all, he asked if I, if he could send a note to me, like he was like, this might bring up a very triggering event for you. And so if you're open to it, I'd really love to send you this letter. And I've posted the entire letter on, um, on my blog and it, he, he, he talks about, um, how over the last few years, since we had that interaction, he's learned more deeply about trauma, radical honesty, nonviolent communication, enthusiastic consent, and the effect in, and the effects of privilege. I'm quoting right now from him. Um, and again, the uh, quote, the more I learn about these things, the more awareness I have about the pain I may have caused others. So my intention is to give you recognition and to apologize. And he goes on and goes into this like really beautiful, extensive apology. And it was so mind blowing to receive this, this letter from someone. And I showed it to one of my, um, one of my girlfriends and she was like, she started crying, (laughs) like to have a guy like admit to any of these things, you know, Mm -hmm. um, was so powerful. And it just sort of showed me like, what, what if we had this, you know, to heal this, um, in our culture, you know, to heal this rift that's happening. Yeah. I mean, I think about that, even when we talk about consent culture, Mm. how many of us, we don't know how to really tap into what our desire really is mm-hmm. versus what we've been sort of taught we should crave or want or yeah. desire. And like how hard it is to really give consent. Like we don't even know ourselves yeah. well enough to be able to like like consent in ways that are like totally and totally enthusiastic, I think, a lot of times. And I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with that other, other than to say like I know that there are times when – 
like, man, I wish that somebody had talked to me about really when I was younger about really learning to locate my own desire mm-hmm. and to listen to it and mm-hmm. and what consent really looks like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how to have those conversations between yes. two people. And that's totally. one thing, too, that we kind of think that consent is this like black and white kind of thing. And I think you sent me this article about college students who uh, like college guys who are getting like consent texts so that they don't get accused of rape. Like before they start engaging with a woman, they oh, like, I don't think I said you that. didn't I send that to I me. Seen oh, it now. funny. Yeah. I was reading about how, um, how that's starting to happen is like, 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 like get it in so writing. That, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like line. Yeah. It wasn't, yeah. it wasn't too long after, um, that athlete from that rapist from, from Stanford, um, was like let off the hook basically for raping a young woman, uh, Brock something. Oh yeah. Who like clearly. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I don't know. Like would someone who's really, really drunk still be able to send a consent text? I mean, that's. Yeah. And I'm not saying that that. (laughs) Right, right, right. I'm just like, that's a fascinating concept. But it's like, where do we go? Like, how do we, because something else that's been happening since me too is women and men, you know, parents saying, um, well, I will definitely teach my young son, don't do this and don't do that. And it's like drawing a hard line around something that isn't hard, like, mm-hmm. you know, d- shouldn't have this rigidity to it. Right. So how do we like relate to each other in, in our sexual experiences? And, and, um, yeah, cause like, it does require an attunement. It's funny. I remember the first time because I did not grow up in any sort of like progressive culture. And those were not the kinds of guys that I had my first sexual experiences with. But I remember the first time I was with a guy who asked me, can I kiss you? Can I touch you here? Can I do this? And I was like, wow. (laughs) If you had asked me before that, like, I would have thought it was weird. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, um, but when in that moment, it actually was kind of hot, you know, (laughs) like, Mm. I was like, oh, you like, I don't know, to for for him to, like, ask me that and for yeah. me to, to say, like, yeah, I do want it. You know, yeah. like, there was something about that that, for me, I was so not used to. Yeah. I mean, I've rarely experienced that either. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it's not like, it's not like, especially if it's someone who you're in a relationship with or, like, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. whatever that looks like. It's not like you want to have to, like, negotiate all of that, yeah. like <laughs> like, in that way every time. Um, but yeah, in, in, and for this person and I, it was like a first time encounter, but it was like, yeah, I don't know. I just was like, oh, this is, this is kind of, this is kind of nice, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, when I, I remember when I, I started dating men who are like a little bit like more sensitive than what I was used to, just them being able to pick up on like, you know, you seem like you're not totally into this, like what's Mm. going on? Like that's, that's huge. That, Mm -hmm. that was, that, that actually forced me to look at like a lot of my own um, trauma around sexuality. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So with all of this, like seeing how can we move forward as, as a society in all of this with me too. And, you know, just like this sort of ongoing, um, public conversation about sexual assault and, and power and, and, um, and all of that. Um, I'm really excited today because we have, um, a really good friend of mine, actually, uh, his name is Juan Carlos 
Ariane, who uh, does a lot of work in domestic violence prevention. And so he's coming to talk to us about the about violence between the genders and um, and also how this relates to a lack of of spirituality in men and a lack of access to uh, more feminine things like vulnerability and and emotionality. Um, so I think we're going to have a really great conversation with him. Yeah, and I and I do want to add that like. We obviously, the three of us are talking all kind of like identify as either male or female, and we understand that not everybody um, fits neatly into the gender binary, and we are kind of talking about these in some sort of binary ways, but um, I hope that wherever our listeners are on that spectrum that you uh, can find something that you can relate to. Mm -hmm. Thanks for saying that, Rebecca. And here's our interview with Juan Carlos. Juan Carlos Arián is an internationally recognized activist, public speaker, trainer, facilitator, and published author. He works as a program director for Futures Without Violence. Since 1991, he has worked to engage men across different cultures to become better fathers, intimate partners, and allies to end domestic violence and achieve gender equity. He was previously the director of the National Latino Network at Casa de Esperanza, and a sexual assault prevention specialist at Harvard University. Juan Carlos is an active trainer who has led hundreds of workshops and presentations throughout the United States, the Americas, and the Caribbean, as well as in Europe, Asia, the U.S. Congress, and the United Nations in New York and Geneva. A person of many interests, he is an ordained interfaith, interspiritual minister, and has a master's degree in music composition. Thanks so much for being with us today, Juan Carlos. My pleasure. I think the the length of the bio shows uh, my age more than anything else. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just realized I think you're uh, the the first man to be on our show. Yeah, I, we interviewed someone else, but we haven't released the episode yet. So, um, and I think yours will come before that. So well, I'm very honored. <laughs> <laughs> and it seems uh, quite apropos for today's conversation, because um, we're going to be talking a lot about gender reconciliation and, uh, and, you know, violence between the genders, you know, mostly men perpetrating against women, and, and you have a lot of um, work in that area. So, so yeah, I think it's quite appropriate that you're the first uh, male person with us today. <laughs> Thank you. Juan Carlos, can you tell us a little bit about your story and how you came to this work? Absolutely. Uh, and I think it, it is important. Thank you for that question, because for me, this work is uh, very personal. It's not only professional work, but it's 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 my life, not only my work, right? Uh, and so, people often ask me this question: How did you end up where you are right now? And in some way, I do feel that uh, I could not have planned it; that I I was guided and have been guided one step at a time. Uh, I started doing uh, work around gender in the late 1980s, and I'm dating myself for sure. Uh, and uh, I became in interested in that because uh, I could see, I, I met uh, my wife, Nancy, uh, in, uh, in the mid 80s, and I could see how the way that she related to her friends and the way that she was in the world seemed so much freer to me and deeper 
to me than the way that I was in the world at that at that time uh, in terms of intimacy with with friends vulnerability with friends and even though i did not grow up as you know with a hyper masculine kind of model of of, of masculinity it was a traditional one uh, uh including stuffing my feelings right and also uh you know the idea that men uh, are supposed to be in control to a certain degree uh so i, I started questioning some of these things and realizing how this uh this traditional uh way of seeing masculinity was uh was not good for me so that's that's the place where i started and i ended up um finding a group of men in amherst massachusetts in the western part of massachusetts uh again late 80s this was very rare at that point i have to say so i just feel like okay i was at the right place at the right time uh, and these men were uh doing basically the equivalent of the women's consciousness raising groups of the 70s uh in terms of looking at issues of gender and they were uh looking not only about how masculinity is uh damaging uh for men traditional masculinity i should say but also how uh masculine privilege right is damaging to other people which was new for me i have to say even though i had a history of working in social justice since i was in my teens i had never thought uh of gender issues until really i met my wife who is a very strong feminist and then i got involved uh with these men who were doing work that i had never seen before and it just totally blew me away i was like okay this is what i want to do i don't know how but this is what i want to do and from there it's been an interesting journey now that i've been doing this for for uh, a little over 25 years um so from that point uh i think i started understanding the political issues uh of the dimensions of feminism and so on but like about 10 years later i started uh exploring like bringing more together my spiritual life who again i was introduced to spirituality by my my wife i owe her a lot i have to recognize uh and start to understanding this concept of what the sacred masculinity is and that's an important point because we are not talking about the i don't think masculinity is a bad thing right uh i think uh that like anything else masculinity has a light side of it and it has a shadow side of it and uh when we talk about this hegemonic traditional masculinity some people are calling it toxic masculinity uh what we're talking about is is the shadow part of masculinity but there's another side of masculinity that it's light and it's sacred and it's necessary and by the way when i say masculinity or femininity i'm not saying men and women and I'm, i'm talking about archetypal right energies that we all have and that we in my opinion both should cultivate so i i engage on a journey of going from a spiritual way what does it mean to uh, cultivate the sacred masculine and eventually to cut a long story short in the last few years 
I it was very clear to me that I also had to pursue the path of sacred femininity or the or, or the divine mother energy, and my last few years have been very devoted to that energy and to bringing both of those energies into my life. I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm curious too, just in specifically like how you got into um, domestic violence prevention. Like, where did that kind of come in to yeah to this journey? So what happened is that those, that group of men that I was referring to, that I got involved to, uh, decided that to you know go from the theoretical to the uh, to the practical, and they uh, started uh, doing educational groups for men uh, who were abusive in their relationships, right? And eventually. Uh, they invited me to join. And even though I don't have a background uh, and, you know, these were not therapy groups, so you didn't, ha didn't need to have a background on, on, on therapy. They were more educational groups, but eventually I, I got trained to do that. And, and again, it's one of those things that one thing led to another that I could have never planned or, or when I was in school, which I was actually as was said in the introduction i studied music originally i never would have imagined i will end up doing this so for for about 10 years i work directly with men who use abuse and then after that i started working with the national Organi organization futures without violence and focusing more on the prevention side of things although the line is not very solid be between those two things so at this point uh, I've been doing this for, uh, as I said, a little over 25 years. And a lot of what I do now is, is training uh, other folks or talking about these issues at national and sometimes international levels. Juan Carlos, I'm curious, you know, the reason we have you on today is partly because it seems like right now we're in this really extraordinary moment in our culture right now that kind of got started in the past year maybe, but has really accelerated recently where all of a sudden these men who have been like serial abusers and and rapists and sexual harassers are um, like people are coming out and telling their stories and it's like they're kind of falling like dominoes, it seems like. Yes. And um, I'm just wondering if you can speak to that, like what, what do you see happening right now? Um, what do you see as the path forward from some of this? Yeah, it's a fascinating time. I was recently doing a training and someone was, uh, you know, talking about the Weinstein case and saying, oh, my God, it's amazing that he has been doing this for decades and nobody talked about it. And it's such a new thing. And of course, you know, because I have been doing this work, I know that it's not a new thing, that it's been around always. Right. Uh, but what is different is that it's it's coming to light. And uh, I agree with you. At this point, it's hard to keep count of how many powerful men have fallen, right? From, mm -hmm. from accusations uh, or from recognizing issues around uh, sexual harassment and, uh, and sexual assault. And uh, I, think, I think that's a good thing. I think, uh, in order to change things, we need that level of accountability and consequences. And also we need to shed light into things that usually happen in secret and in private. The I know uh, 
part of the title of, of this podcast is Reflections on, on Me Too, which uh, I think was also a very seminal and important moment, especially for, for many men who I think have a hard time really accepting the reality that, that, that women are harassed all the time, <laughs> all right? All the fucking time. <laughs> exactly. On the street, at the job, where you name it. And I know that the first time that I, you know, had to face that reality was a part of me was like, really? Partly, I think, because it's it's so painful. You know, I, I feel that the Me Too, for me, I felt so much pain. And it's not that I didn't know this, because all the women in my life have, have been harassed, right? And friends and so on. I mean, when, when people say, well, you know, this percentage of women have been, have been harassed, this is 100%, yeah. I, it's, yeah. right? It's like, I don't think there's a single exception unless you never left your home, right? So, <laughs> and that is it. It's a very sad reality, but it's true. And I think it's so important that men recognize and and recognize that that we all are part of that i think one of the dangers of some of these big names of people falling like weinstein or uh bill o'reilly or which, whichever is to say oh wow what an, an aberration this guy is a monster you know uh it's we all are part of it and that's that's where it becomes difficult sometimes for men to to hear uh and i the way that i talk about it usually is that it's not necessarily to blame all men for what's happening because it's how we are trained to be this is how i was trained to be and i'm a good student and i learned very well <laughs> right <laughs> and we all men do that uh so I think a big question from the political side of things and, well, not only political, but personal side of things is to accept that we all men are part of this, what some people have been calling rape culture, you know, and again, some men are like, what do you mean? I'm not part of rape culture. Well, if you really understand what it means, which is like if we ever had laughed at a sexist joke or made a sexist joke or made a cat call or not stop a cat call. Uh, I, I, you know, I know all men have been complicit in some way or another. And again, it's not, a, it's not so much to blame, but I think it's so important that we all men start taking full responsibility because otherwise we will not change this. You only can change things when you fully own them, right? And, then, and, and, and that's power. That's, that gives us the power of say, you know what? things can change and I will be part of that change. I want to know how this, um, you know, like you were talking about being a good student and being trained to be this way. And, and, and I think that's that toxic masculinity that you're talking about. Like, like the, there's this very narrow view of what it means to be a man. And that's, what's toxic. It's not that being a man is inherently bad or that masculinity is inherently bad, but that there's this, this certain version of it that's been learned and handed down for, you know, eons for generations and generations. And, um, so can you like maybe speak to that a little bit more and like what, and then also what would be a healthy expression of, of masculinity? Right. Well, so again, 
it's important that we we establish and i know you folks know that but i i i like to talk about it first of all that because of your generation now uh, more and more people are clear that that sex and gender are two different things right mm -hmm. and that that we are born or assigned to to a sex when when we are born and but, but that gender is much more fluid that, than that you know uh and I would take this one step further. And as I said before, I think masculinity and femininity are, are, are energies or archetypes that we all carry within us. And most of us are somewhere uh, in that uh, spectrum, if you will, right? So uh, both masculinity and femininity have shadow sides and have light sides. So what people call toxic masculinity, and I know some people don't like the term, but you can call it, you know, rigid traditional masculinity or, sh or the shadow side of masculinity. Yes, it's, is, is, uh, you know, characterized mainly by the ideas that men call the shots, that we should be in control, right? And that when we're not in control, we should impose our will over others, women, children, and other men. Right. So that's one aspect of it. But the other aspect of it, as I was saying at, at the beginning, is that we are told since we are boys that we should not feel any feelings besides anger. Right. So we cannot be sad. We cannot be afraid. We cannot be vulnerable. We cannot get in touch. To, and, and that's extraordinarily damaging. You know, I think sometimes when 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 we think at about a simple thing like telling a boy, you know, boys don't cry, which of course is so common. I mean, that message is really terrible, terrible mm -hmm. and so damaging, right? Uh, and of course, I grew up with that. I, and I, I grew up in a family where, where those feelings were not allowed, even, even now, right? So, uh, so again, I think it's important that, that we as men recognize that that toxic masculinity uh, hurts everybody uh, in different ways. I think it hurts men uh, because of it puts us in in a box. But of course, it hurts women and children uh, because, in addition to hurting them, uh, we oppress them. You know, with with mm -hmm. this model. So uh, I think I think this is one of the things that I see slowly changing. I, I have two sons and of course, you know, they grew up in, grew up in my family, but I have, I see uh, their friends too, that they're started to, starting to get out of that box more and more. Mm -hmm. And and you see more men on TV or whatever, being more open, crying, you know, things that you could not imagine when I was a kid, really. And of course, more, more awareness about how this toxic masculinity is, is hurting others. Uh, of, uh, of course, you know, right now we live in this weird political moment where, where our president is the best example of this toxic masculinity, you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it's right it's, there. It's, <laughs> Just look. You know, exactly. It's, you don't need to go far to, to say this is what we are talking about. And, you know, that maybe this is the subject of another conversation. I think this is part of a reaction and a, a last, uh, um, it's a de desperate move, I think, from uh, certain mainly white men to say, you know, we, we, we matter, you know, and this is how it looks like. So what 
what does uh, the light part of masculinity, healthy masculinity, and, and again, it's very important for me that we understand that that this is something that is available to men, women, and and mm-hmm. any kind of gender in between. Uh, because, you know, some of the archetypal uh, characteristics of masculinity are courage and selflessness and, uh, of course, the role of the provider and the, the, the role of the protector. Uh, and all of those characteristics are available for men as well as, as women, right? Uh, and there's something about action and taking action mm-hmm. and movement that I think is very connected with that characteristic of sacred masculinity. And, and the interesting thing is that since the second wave of feminism in the in the 70s, women have been integrating some of the characteristics of, of masculinity, right? Uh, more and more women are, of course, in the workplace and in, in uh, universities and, and, and taking leadership leadership position and granted sometimes they also have adopted the 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 shadow side of masculinity right i was thinking about that in watching hillary clinton like Mm. to me i mean this is just my opinion but like she sort of embodies some of those more uh toxic masculine qualities and and i you know and i sympathize like i'm sure you know to get to where she is now i'm sure she needed to sort of have that like you know that really like ballsy kind of attitude and and lack of emotionality you know yeah um but it definitely to me she was not an example of like a feminist who embodied these like really amazing feminine qualities you know right right and and you know it's very complicated because we still live in a very patriarchal society right and mm-hmm. i think the perception and maybe the reality i really cannot comment on that but uh, is that that women feel that they need to play by these rules to to mm-hmm. be in power right uh i think if uh as as men and women start understanding that we both need this sacred masculinity and sacred femininity, I think that's when the rules will start to change. And then we will all benefit from that, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And too, you know, I think, because I'm a little bit older than you, Chelsea, I do remember in the early 90s, how much she was just torn apart just for being a woman who had a career. sure. (laughs) And like, didn't have her husband's last name. And yeah. And you know, as a somewhat ballsy woman myself or someone who gets... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm wondering about this this concept of, like, the shadow. Like, we talk about the light side and the shadow side. But, you know, in my, my own experience, the shadow is always something that, when it's integrated in an appropriate way, is no longer toxic, mm-hmm. you know? or is mm-hmm. it, and, and that's been a, a lot of my challenges figuring out how can, how am I assertive and strong without being domineering or, mm-hmm. um, or sort of um, just replicating the mistakes of patriarchal culture or toxic masculinity, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and it's, um, how can I be honest about my anger without uh, being stuck in it or like using it to sort of like just blast everybody? Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah. I, I think to be assertive and, and, to be, you know, using power. Uh, power is not a bad thing, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a mi- misuse of power which, that is a bad thing. So I couldn't agree 
more with you that I think, you know, the shadow is, of course, the other side of the light only. And, and when, when you work on it and flip it, uh, that's, that's when uh, I think we will be more successful in what we want to do as activists. And things have definitely been changing, but even I have noticed, um, you know, and I, I, like I spend time with lots of very conscious feminist men, but I've noticed too, um, I'm thinking of like two different people that I've just talked to. I talked to my dad yesterday and, and, you know, he grew up in more of a traditional time, obviously. Um, but he's also always been very like in touch with his emotions and, mm-hmm. um, and very artistic and, and he and I have like such a great relationship. And he was telling me yesterday about like this lack of really close friendships with men in his life. Yeah. Like he has a couple that he's had that like he could be as close as with anybody, but usually it's like the women in his life, mm-hmm. you know, like his, mm-hmm. his wife or, um, you know, people that he works with. Um, and, and I've noticed this too with, um, recently my partner and I were having some like we were having some difficulties and tensions and, and even he was like, Chelsea, you get to talk to all of your friends about this stuff, but I don't really have friends to talk to about this stuff, except for our, our in common women friends. Yes. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And that struck me as really, um, surprising and, and interesting that even, even in sort of, you know, I'm a millennial, like even in our sort of changing and like very conscious sort of peer group, um, it can be difficult for, for men to be intimate and um, vulnerable with each other. Absolutely. I mean, it, the training is, is so strong. Uh, that's why, you know, when I first discovered this group of men that I was talking about, I was, I was blown away exactly for what you were saying, Chelsea. I mean, I do have a couple of friends, which I actually from my teenage years that are, you know, as we say in, in Spanish, amigos del alma, you know, soul friends. Uh, and I know we'll always be that way. Uh, but, but I, even, even with all the work that I do and so, so forth, I still sometimes feel like, wow, uh, it's so hard to find those kinds of friends. And, and when I was with those men, you know, what, what, Basically, they did is to create a space where we could be real with each other, which, you know, I think this is something that women have a hard time understanding sometimes because you folks, <laughs> you know, it's you're trained that way and, and you are allowed to be very intimate uh, with each other in your friendships and, and, and in circles. But for men... Uh, basically we are trained the opposite and said you have to be protected and you and, and then you end up even when you think that you have friendships talking what you talk about is irrelevant really sports mm. and you know and mm-hmm. those kinds of things I know that you know I like sports but but you know what I mean we never go into the the deep stuff or rarely we do and and you know one thing that is fascinating when when i was doing these groups for uh, abusive men one of the things that that i observe is is that when we created that safe space they couldn't stop talking about Mm, about deep stuff and these are you know these are people that we could easily demonize, right? Uh, but the truth is that they are again in the spectrum 
of rape and abuse culture that we all grew up with. And uh, some of some of them just wouldn't want to. Some of them were mandated by the court to be there for, I don't know, like, say, 26 weeks. And, and some of them just said, I, I don't want to leave. I don't have other mm. place where I can be real with wow. other men, you know. So, yes, that's a oh, huge. That sounds deficit. so painful. It is painful. <laughs> It is painful, and and I do feel that we need to create more and more spaces for men uh, to be able to to be real with each other. Yeah, yeah. So Juan Carlos, um, you and I actually work together on some ancestral healing stuff, um, mm-hmm. and so it's funny because we we talked about bringing you on the show for that because we've been talking a lot about that with other people about um, ancestral healing and and. Um, so we thought of bringing you on because you had had this um, really amazing experience. So I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit and um, and how it can relate to this healing between the genders and um, and how maybe you're integrating that work into um, into your work in the world. Absolutely. So I think, and this is you know work that I'm just developing really the last year or so. Uh, I had the opportunity to be in Mexico a year ago around, well, it was uh, during Dia de los Muertos, the Day of the Dead. But I ended up through a series of synchronicities being at the center of an atonement ceremony uh, where I took responsibility for what my people, which are the Spanish, I come from a family, my parents are from Spain, even though I grew up in Mexico, taking full responsibility of what my people did to the Mexican indigenous people. And it was an extraordinarily powerful ceremony. Uh, I just, you know, was one part of it. I was a conduit for it. Uh, But there was something so powerful about that act of taking full responsibility for something that you very well could argue, well, it wasn't your fault or you weren't there or, you know, this mm-hmm. happened hundreds of years ago. I mean, we hear that the whole time. But the, time. <laughs> the, the truth is that, you know, we as, as white, as people of European origins, we still benefit, right, from, mm-hmm. from all of this, even though we weren't there. And I think there is, well, we know there's a historical trauma there, right? And there's a lot of talk about, uh, well, not, I don't know if a lot, but more and more talk about historical trauma on the side of people that have been victimized, which makes total sense. But I, but I think there's also historical trauma on the side of people that, that descend from, from the perpetrators of the violence, right? Mm-hmm. So anyway, that was totally life-transforming experience uh, for me and for really everybody who was at that ceremony. And even as I start talking more and more about it, I have done a couple of workshops on this particular topic. I can see that it's transformational even to hear about it. Not, you don't even need it to be there in person. And uh, I'm convinced that if we, if we moved this from race or ethnicity to gender, that, that we have that same need of atonement. And we, as men, need to take full responsibility for the damage that we have done to women for millennia, basically. You know, mm-hmm. and, and again, it's so easy 
to decide, well, no, I'm a good guy, right? I'm a feminist guy. I'm not part of that. But at so many levels, from the political level that I talk about, you know, what people call rape culture and how we, in some way or another, we're all complicit, we all men are, to, I think, a spiritual karmic level in which we are carrying generations of, of historical trauma, you know, I think would be so powerful mm -hmm. if m more and more men decided I'm going to atone for this. I'm mm -hmm. going to fully take full responsibility and offer an apology to women, you know, uh, whether the women accept it or not, that's in some way. <laughs> not our business, you know? <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and it's something actually that was uh, very beautiful is that my son, Alejandro, who's 22 years old, recently took the initiative to do that with, uh, with a woman uh, who he, he, he knows and has been working with. So uh, I think this is an idea whose time has come And I think it's so important that any group that, that has been complicit in some way or another in oppression start really embracing full responsibility for mm -hmm. it. Yeah, you know, one of the things that can be so, I think, frustrating or hurtful to deal with sometimes as women is when we have men in our lives who might be really like amazing men and, and want to be very supportive of women and who are you know, very progressive and, and all of those things. There are ways in which I think all men have internalized patriarchy or toxic masculinity or whatever you call it to some degree because it's the culture yeah. that we live in. And um, how, you know, how difficult it can be when, you know, I, I've had this experience with multiple men in my life, and, and I know other women have too, where you try to point it out to them or say like, hey, I, I think you're you're behaving in a way that, that is reflective of some of this patriarchal culture. And um, how many men just can't hear it or yeah. won't hear it or go to a place of defensiveness? Because it seems like it's so terrifying for them to consider that maybe they too, it, it's, yeah. it's infected them or, or they're complicit in it or however you mm -hmm. want to talk about it. Right. I think that's why it's so important to normalize it, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and the, what I was talking about not to see the Weinsteins and Bill O'Reilly's of the world as an aberration, but as really a part of a continuum, you know. Mm -hmm. And again, for me, it's not about either blame or shame, because I don't think those things are helpful, but just about recognizing exactly what you were saying, Rebecca, that, that we all grew up in a patriarchal society, you know, women too, and women reproduce mm -hmm. it in their own ways, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. uh, And never kind of like settle for like, oh, okay, I got it. Now I got it. <laughs> you know, right. I, I'm a feminist man. I'm, I'm cured. I will never reproduce this, this thing. Right. You know, I often am in circumstances where, where I'm with uh, other men who do similar work as I do. And uh, even there, many men who have been doing personal work, we still play the, the patriarchal game and sometimes we 
like power place and like who is more you know what's the pecking order here and like mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. it's so ingrained in ourselves mm-hmm. that that uh it's it's i won't say impossible but it's so hard to totally eliminate so in some way the work is just to to be mindful right at as much as possible all the time and recognize mm-hmm. and and i think yes uh, we have to be able to listen to criticism from women or from any other group that uh, feels oppressed by, by patriarchy and, and be humble. It's mm-hmm. like humility. And again, if we go to what we men are taught to be, humble is not one at the top of the list. You know? <laughs> so, But that's mm-hmm. absolutely an essential component. I, I don't know if you folks have heard of cultural humility that some people mm-hmm. well there's there's two women that develop uh, an alternative to cultural competence which uh, sometimes it might be interpreted you know just because of the language competence what i was saying before oh i'm i'm competent right now right so right, I, i'm right. done but cultural humility uh, emphasizes that this is a lifelong process of learning yeah. and uh, and in the word it says and it's it's, it's a place uh, uh, in which uh, we humble ourselves and, and and continue learning and listening deeply, right? Mm-hmm. Mm. And you know, I think that that word humility. I know that especially for people maybe who come from a, a Christian background or a conservative Christian background, sometimes it can have these um, connotations of like. I am I'm just nothing. I'm like a lowly worm. <laughs> I'm you know humility conjures up these these ideas of just abject sort of like nothingness and and lowliness. And it was it was actually when I was staying in a Benedictine uh, or Cistercian monastery and, and reading reading a book about the the rule of St. Benedict that I came across a definition of of humility that I really resonated with, which was that it, it's really just being, be yourself, be fully yourself and, and step up and say something when you need to, and also step back and make room for somebody else when, when you need to, and, you know, being willing to like make mistakes and, and not letting that like send you into a shame spiral mm-hmm. um, when you mm-hmm. do. And uh, I had an, another friend who, when we were talking about this, um, she said, yeah, humility is taking up exactly the right amount of space that you need to in the mm-hmm. moment. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's um, a good way of putting that. That's very interesting. That that reminds me a little bit of the concept of allyship, of being an ally, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. of course, that we use a lot in in our fields of activism. And, and that's how I understand allyship is exactly what you said taking the amount of of uh space that that you need to take at a given time because Mm -hmm. it changes from one moment to another right so for me as a man as a man in in a feminist movement to end violence against women and girls sometimes i'm asked to take the lead and speak up and sometimes i'm asked to sit down and shut up (laughs) Mm and i have to Mm -hmm. i have to be attuned to that It's a dynamic process for sure. Right. Wow. Well, it's so rich to hear all of this and um, and see how we can all move forward. I mean, it reminds me so much of like dealing with, um, you know, there's so many parallels between um, between this and like 
racism and yeah. and sort of and I kept thinking this during the when Me Too is really trending. I was like, what if we did this when when like another black teenager gets shot, you know, or, or mm-hmm. something where it's like, what if white people were like admitting their implicit biases or, uh, or explicit <laughs> racism, um, right. you know, like just the, in general, like in the public discourse, we need more of these, um, even just these tiny offerings of atonement, you know, even just having the hashtag I have was sort of a, a mini offering of atonement, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. um, yeah. And that in general, we need more space for that in our public um, conversations because because it's so easy to I mean, I, I like how you've talked about sort of the spectrum of rape culture. Like it's so easy to vilify those who are sort of at the at one extreme end who have like raped countless women or assaulted countless women. And uh, it's so so it's so easy to sort of like just dismiss them and vilify them and think, OK, the problem's solved, you know, but really it's like we're all upholding all of these structures we're all complicit <laughs> absolutely you know, in all of them so I, I don't know if you saw that uh, there there were many hashtags in response of me too mm-hmm. uh but one of them was uh how i will change you know mm. and uh, oh, again wow, i didn't see that one yeah you can look it up um so it was an invitation of men for men to to say this is what i will do differently now that i've I've seen how uh, pervasive this this issue is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Juan Carlos, this has been really amazing, a really great conversation. And uh, usually, to wrap up, we um, we like to end the show by asking our guests what's nourishing them right now. And mm. uh, I wonder if you could just tell us one one thing briefly that's nourishing or inspiring you. Absolutely. Well, first of all, I want to thank both of you uh, for inviting me to your podcast and I have enjoyed very much being part of it and before I answer your question very briefly I just like to put a a call to my fellow men who are listening here uh, to embrace this work this is important work for all of us this is not only for for women and girls and children uh all of us will non men (laughs) and and all non men yes but uh you know I usually uh, try to speak directly to, to men. And there's, again, no blame, no shame, unless we decide not to do anything about it. Mm-hmm. And in terms of um, what nourishes me, well, I, you know, I have a very vigorous uh, spiritual practice, definitely, and uh, that is my, my help and my self-care. But I also have to say that, you know, I've been doing this for a long time and I probably would consider myself an optimist and I do believe that things change. I mean, social norms definitely change. It's impossible for them not to change, right? Sometimes sometimes they get worse, (laughs) many times they get better. And one thing that inspires me is first of all, talking to young people like you, uh, Chelsea and Rebecca, and also my two sons, because uh, I think they are really uh, embracing uh, this uh, this journey in their own paths as they are becoming men, and uh, and they inspire me, and I learn from them. So I'm very grateful for all young people in the world doing this work. Thank you. Thanks so much. What about you, Chelsea? I came across this Audre Lord quote last night that 
has just been sticking with me. Um, and it goes, when I dare to be powerful, to use my strength in the service of my vision, then it becomes less and less important whether I am afraid. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's just sort of hitting me where I'm at right now. And, um, and I hadn't seen that quote from her before. And um, I think just, you know, it sort of applies to what we've been talking about, um, about like using our power and privilege um, to heal. And the more we do that, the less we have to be afraid, <laughs> you mm. know? So, yeah. And what about you, Rebecca? Yeah. You know, it, I, what actually came to mind was uh, a poem. You know, I, I have my spiritual practice and my spiritual work that I'm always doing. And um, for me, a lot of my spiritual practice is about confronting my own pain and really being present to it. Like, um, and sometimes, you know, in meditation or, or in different practices that can be really deeply, intensely physical for me because I, I am very empathic and I tend to feel things a lot. And um, I heard this poem or I saw someone post it recently that really spoke to a lot of my experience. So I'm just going to read it to close us out here. And it's called Mother Wisdom Speaks. And it's by um, Christine Lore Weber. Some of you I will hollow out. I will make you a cave. I will carve you so deep the stars will shine in your darkness. You will be a bowl. You will be the cup in the rock collecting rain. I will hollow you with knives. I will not do this to make you clean. I will not do this to make you pure. You are clean already. You are pure already. I will do this because the world needs the hollowness of you. I will do this for the space that you will be. I will do this because you must be large, a passage. People will find their way through you, a bowl. People will eat from you, and their hunger will not weaken them to death. A cup to catch the sacred rain. My daughter, do not cry. Do not be afraid. Nothing you need will be lost. I am shaping you. I am making you ready. Light will flow in your hollowing. You will be filled with light. Your bones will shine. The round open center of you will be radiant. I will call you brilliant one. I will call you daughter who is wide. I will call you transformed. Mm. Beautiful. Thank you. I think to me that speaks so much to the pain that we have to confront within ourselves and within our culture and within our our relationships with one another um, in order to, to do this work of justice. Thank you. What a great way to end. All right. Thanks again, Juan Carlos. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much. If you want to hear more episodes on spirituality and activism, check out listentotherising.com. And even better, subscribe to us on iTunes. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram. See you next time on The Rising.